All right, how's it going? My name is Matt Bart. You are listening to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast, the show where I try and uncover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for checking out this episode. Hope you enjoy it. Fascinating conversation, this one, with Australian Lucy Small, a surfer who found herself at the centre of, well, a genuine viral moment earlier this year. If you follow surf media at all, you probably saw it because this was one of those things that really did go around the world and was featured pretty much everywhere. People like Sydney Morning Herald to Beach Grit had a say. Now, what happened was Lucy won an event in Sydney and realised as she went to collect her comedy oversized check that her prize money as the winning female came in at $1,500 compared to the $4,000 prize dished out to the male winner. Now, in these situations, obviously, it's easy to keep quiet, although, you know, even hearing this, I was like, really? Is this still happening? But on this occasion, Lucy decided to speak out and draw attention to this latest example of the gender pay gap in action. And yes, a viral moment was born. She used her spotlight. Well, I mean, I'm going to say spotlight, but it wasn't exactly many people there, but somebody filmed it. It was when the, during the prize giving and she basically called out the organisers of the event and asked them why there was this uh, disparity in the prize money. And since then, Lucy's found herself at the centre of an age-old but still extremely important debate about gender equity and the value we place on the contribution of men and women in surfing and indeed society in general. Now, if you've listened to this podcast at all closely over the years, it'll be no surprise to hear that I've been following this one closely and once the dust had settled somewhat, I contacted Lucy to see if she'd be up for coming on the show to talk about her experience and explore the issues thrown up by the entire incident, which she did. And I'm happy to say the result is a lengthy, nourishing conversation about this entire issue. Now, here's the thing with the status quo. We get so used to it that change can seem impossible. And the bigger the issue, the more entrenched that invisible consensus can seem Often it takes a simple act of bravery to get the ball rolling. An individual or group raising their hand and asking a simple question, isn't there a better way of doing this? Sticking your head above the parapet in this way takes great courage, particularly when you're dealing with a hyper-masculine culture like surfing. Over the years, I've spoken to a fair number of women who've taken this position upon themselves and helped to change things. I'm thinking of people like the great Lane Beachley, Corey Schumacher, Lauren Hill and Sophie Hellier among them. There are more. But the fact that Lucy Small's very reasonable position and stance became such a talking point shows just how far we've got to go and why I was so interested in chatting to her about the whole thing and the issues it raised. Good one, this. Really enjoyed it. I'll be back at the end. In the meantime, here's me and Lucy. Enjoy. surfers is that like when you are a pro surfer like what you have to comment on mostly is surfing so when you kind of go outside of um like asking people who have always surfed to comment on things outside of surfing if they haven't really gotten into that much because they're busy being a pro surfer it's like how do they know how do they comment it's people that are more like they're sort of pros or they're not, they don't 
that they sort of have these other lives and careers outside of surfing that usually have the most to say. I, that's what I've kind of found. Um, and maybe then after their kind of elite level careers that they can um, go on to to kind of have a bit more to say in other areas outside of surfing. Um, yeah, I mean, I find the whole topic quite, quite interesting. Um, you know, the idea that just because you're in the public eye, to a certain degree that you should have an opinion like there's a snowboarder a guy called sean white who's won like olympic gold medals and stuff and in snowboarding he's i mean he's he's like a controversial figure really because he's considered to be a jock really you know he's like he's 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 considered to be like not really you know he's too he wants to win too much he's too like you, you know he's not he's not like he's not of the culture enough let's just put it that way um but the way so he gets he's a lightning rod for a lot of the criticisms about you know the way that the cultures are changing with the olympics and you know you know all those arguments and stuff about like you know the difference between surf skating snow culture and mainstream sports culture so he's become like a kind of poster person for that that debate and i'm always just a bit like he's his job is really just to be good at snowboarding if you ask me Mm -hmm. and he's and he's really really good at snowboarding anything beyond that like if he if he's got an opinion fine that he wants to put out there but if he doesn't have an opinion on it do we i just think it's kind of projection if you then start criticizing somebody for not having the opinions that you require them to have because they have a certain position in the public eye i mean it's it's obviously particularly nuanced sort of topic right now given the general conversation you know societal conversations around certain issues but um yeah i just find it an interesting topic particularly when you do something like this and you know you're trying to kind of elicit viewpoints from people really yeah i guess like um it like to get across to make to create or form informed opinions takes time if you're training to for the olympics i i don't know i would imagine that if i was training for the olympics i wouldn't have time to read all the the things that i (laughs) i like to read i'm only able to do that because i'm not training for the olympics and that all um you know like waking up and reading the news and finding out the background of issues and watching documentaries and listening to political podcasts and all those kind of things that inform your opinions. If you're training for the Olympics, do it like, I would imagine you don't really have time to do that. <laughs> or, may, or maybe you're just not interested, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe you're, maybe you're just living your life and doing your thing, which is also fine in my view. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, we've, I kind of started recording because that was quite interesting. But uh, <laughs> how, how are you? You're in Sydney, is that right? You're in Sydney. Yeah, yeah, I'm in Sydney. We're um, we've just gone back into lockdown um, because we haven't had a lot of action and vaccinations over the last six months. So we've just had a small break breakout uh, outbreak and of COVID-19 and um, no one's vaccinated yet. So we've had to go back into lockdown. Is that, is there a, sorry, go on. Oh, it's, it's not so bad to be honest. Like it's winter. Um, 
and we're allowed to exercise so surfing is technically exercise I guess um and otherwise it's just kind of the habit of being quiet um and that's that's actually pretty fine by me <laughs> right is a is there a vaccination program happening is there like a kind of because over here we've had six months of I mean, I think we might be one of the most vaccinated countries in the world right now. You know, they've like really thrown everything at it to try and... I was just actually reading an interesting article before we started recording about how apparently us and the UK and Israel are the two countries that are actually kind of trying to vaccinate our way out of this, you know, like to to Mm. sort of say like... Because obviously every country's had like a different approach, haven't they? Particularly Australia's had a very, you know um unique approach compared to a lot of countries in the world and yeah like where it feels like over here we're at a bit of a crunch point because cases are rising again but it's almost like there's there's not really a desire to go back to lockdowns it's like no everyone's vaccinated now so we're just gonna sort of roll the dice and see what happens is is there a a big groundswell of vaccination to mix the metaphors like you know are they, are they trying to get it done over there um yeah we got our we we started we actually had the vaccines in the country in february um but only three percent of the population has actually been vaccinated um we have a government that doesn't really seem to have a grasp on how to on the logistics of that kind of operation like australia's only got 24 million people i think um they definitely it's probably the biggest issue in in current affairs at the moment is the bungled vaccine rollout um hopefully now things are going to start moving a little bit but up until this point um there's like there's not a lot of trust in the government so um a lot of people are wary about getting the vaccine and then in terms of actually getting it to people it just hasn't happened the way that I personally would be hoping for it. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, we'll see what happens from now on. Yeah. Um, so you obviously have been kind of in the news recently um, because of uh, was it the end of March, April, the event that you that you took part in. Yeah, it was um, the end of April. Um, I won a local longboard event here in Sydney on the Northern Beaches. Um, and when I got to the final, I got to the presentation. I didn't know if I'd won, um, but I knew that I'd gotten two good waves in the final. Um, I in the in the gap between like coming out of the water and when the presentation starts, somebody sort of mentioned that. Um, there might be unequal prize money. And um, I really didn't think that that was, that that would be real because I assumed that surfing just has equal prize money now. I didn't really, I didn't really know that there were still small, smaller events that were still having unequal prize money since the WSL introduced equal prize money in 2019. Um, and so I went and checked the novelty checks on the table to find out um what what was going on with the prize money and i saw the the difference um that the men the first prize for men was four thousand dollars and the first for women was 1500 so um we sort of talked amongst ourselves and i checked if 
well, if the entry fee was the same, which it was, and um, and I just thought if I've won, I'm going to say something. Like I can't, if we just quietly mention it to the organisers or send an email after or something like that, nothing's going to change. They're going to give us an excuse that is always given that there's less women, so there's less money. But um, I knew also that I was a late entry into the event, so I tried to get a spot and I only got a spot because um, somebody had dropped out. And um, so there were less women, there were four less women, but there was only, there was four less spots open. And I thought they're just going to try and say something like that um, if we, unless we put them on the spot. And yeah, so when it came to, when they told me that I'd won and we were standing up there and the MC gave me the mic, to um to to say thank you i i said thank you but i also raised the issue that we had less than half of the men's prize money and it cost the same to be there we put in the same amount of effort and um yeah we're given not even half um which yeah it's i at that it at that particular moment seemed like a big deal to bring up I guess in terms of calling people out publicly and putting it on the internet but um it's a conversation that women in surfing have been having since forever um it's it was it was just a, a sort of a public expression of a conversation that um we're all very familiar with so um yeah it really kind of um somebody filmed it and I put it up on my social media and um uh, a few days I waited a few days and then um Sydney Morning Herald which is like sort of the um one of the main newspapers in Sydney um they picked up the story and they did an interview with me and took some photos and then it came out on the front page of the newspaper and after that it um it yeah I ended up being on every major news um outlet in Australia for a day and um, did a, a whole bunch of media related stuff and I've still been doing a little bit over the last few weeks like that's um, yeah a couple of months ago now um, it's been pretty intense it was a kind of yeah probably the one of the most intense things that I've ever experienced and but it really um, yeah it, it like it made me realize the importance of of not being afraid to to speak up about these things and make, it was so clear how much it re- speaking up resonated with so many people um which was a really amazing part of that experience did has the reaction surprised you um it's funny that question quite a few people have asked me that um and i guess when i uploaded that video to socials i i didn't realize that it would have such a big reaction that was not anything that i thought it was i thought maybe some people within the surfing community or within the longboarding community or my friends who are so familiar with getting less prize money that i wanted them to see it because i thought like well finally i've 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 spoken out about this um, so the scale of the reaction surprised me. Um, I had hundreds and hundreds of people messaging me on Instagram saying thank you and um, 
yeah, I was walking down the street in Sydney and somebody yelled out, congratulations on the surfing. <laughs> and I've never <laughs> experienced anything like that before. I think for the three or four weeks after, um, I didn't think I spoke to a single person who didn't say, I saw you in the newspaper or whatever, like, well, congratulations. And um, so, yeah, I think that the scale of it was surprising. Um one of the particular parts of like the reaction was like the so many women or um yeah women athletes many surfers but um from other codes as well that messaged me to say like this happens in my sport as well and i'm so sick of being treated like i don't belong in a community and a in a in a game or a sport or a pursuit that i love um, and so I've always wanted to speak out. Um, so uh, that wasn't surprising that it resonated, but um, I guess I didn't realize how much people uh, have felt like they've wanted to say something like I did. And um, so I was kind of, it was actually like, it, it was, I guess it fueled my rage in a way, but it, also, um, it was kind of heartwarming to feel like I've sort of managed to connect with all these people around the world who have had similar experiences to me and, and kind of made me re feel like we're ready for change. We're ready for this change to happen. Um, and so in that sense, it was kind of heartwarming um, and kind of, yeah, made me, has made me feel excited or inspired or even annoyed enough <laughs> to try and make to carry this and and make something happen from it rather than just it be a moment um that then disappears and has no impact um so yeah yeah i mean I, i've obviously loads of questions about it one question i did have about the actual um incident if you like was that there's when you first started talking in the crowd the people gathered to sort of realize what you were talking about. There's a few groans that you can see on the video. Like, how did you interpret that? Because it, it's almost, it's quite an interesting reaction, I thought, because you've all, it sounds like, oh, here we go. You know, someone's going to talk about this again. But then as you continue talking, then it, people start applauding. It's, 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 an, it's an interesting reaction. Like, how did you interpret that? Um. At the time, I I didn't actually notice the reaction from the crowd because I was shaking. I was so nervous and I had so much adrenaline that I didn't, I wasn't aware of my surroundings really. I was only conscious of like the words that were coming out of my mouth. Um, but in watching the video back, I didn't think that the crowd was booing. I didn't. I didn't interpret that as a boo. There is this kind of like, ooh. And I think that I understood that as um, that's like, a, ooh, she went there. Yeah. Which to me indicates that they know, you know, that's yeah. like, that is the, that was the crowd that they know that, that it's wrong and they know that this happens all the time. Um, so that was how I interpreted that. And then um, I didn't have it. It wasn't so much, I wasn't nervous from the reaction of the crowd, but more so from like looking in the face of people that have organized this event and saying, 
thank you for this money, but it's not enough. Um, and I, that was, yeah, like that's people within the longboard community. It's within the surf community. It's within Sydney, but that could have gone anyway, I guess. And, um, I was fearful for their reaction. Um, but I knew that I had a pocket of my friends in, in the crowd. And I knew that the people I talked about it with, um, two of the other people in the final with me who were standing up there with me, that we, we were all, we were collectively really annoyed. So I knew that I had that support there with me and it wasn't that I was alone saying this. Um, I think that if I hadn't won, maybe one of the other finalists, whoever would have won, maybe they would have said something. Um, I don't know, but we were all, we were all annoyed about it. It wasn't, um, it wasn't just me. So uh, yeah, I didn't, I think that that, that's how I understood the reaction from the crowd was that like they, they knew, they know it's going on. They've seen it before. And it's a kind of a, like a recognition that I'm just saying something that everybody is aware of. I thought the organizers initial comments were interesting as well, because if I remember rightly, there was somebody quoted as saying like, Oh, you know, she could have just spoken to us privately. Um, and then they kind of made an argument that you hear a lot when this topic is raised um, about, I think they are, I think it was like, well, we've done nothing wrong legally. It's just more a moral issue. And essentially this is how it's, you know, like this, this, this is the status quo is, you know, it's kind of what, what, what was being said. Um, and I read somewhere your reaction was like, yeah, but that's kind of, that, that's the attitude that kind of um, perpetuates this by by saying like well can we not talk about it publicly can we take it out of the public arena or we'll have a private discussion but obviously your whole point is that it needs to be discussed publicly or else it's not going to get changed yeah well i guess i i also read that that was one of their comments that they said they could have done this privately and my reaction to that was that well you gave me less than half pr the prize money publicly so you have degraded me publicly and I feel like the only reasonable response to that is to hold you accountable to it in front of the people that you are going to disrespect me in front of. So I think that, like, that that, I, I just think that wanting to deal with it privately just doesn't have the same level of consequence. Like, if I had just sent an email or called them later or talked to them off to the side, none of this media would have happened and nothing would have changed. And I, I guess, like, I understand the concept of how disruption, how a disruptive moment can orchestrate social change. And while that wasn't what I was planning at the time, I also know that I, I knew that if I'm going to say something and say it publicly, that's the best chance I've got for something to change. Because otherwise, normally at any other event where we've had unequal prize money, people just, we're expected as women to receive this lower check and just accept it and walk off. And, and maybe you will complain to somebody later, but I've been complaining to, about this stuff in private for years and it still hasn't changed. The WSL changed their um, position on equal prize money after 
a, a, a very similar situation where there was that junior event in South Africa where there was two novelty checks and there was a photo and the girls one was so much lower and it went global. It was all over the media. And Sophie Goldschmidt then came out and announced that there was going to be um, equal prize money the following year. And it wasn't only that that created that change. It was obviously people within the industry that have worked for many years. But that was the that was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was a disruptive moment. And sending an email or talking to somebody privately doesn't have that same impact. Um, and I just thought by doing it in that moment, it doesn't, there's no way that they can not face what, what has, what's going on. Um, and that's, yeah, I guess it was a decision that I made to try and change that status quo. You know, you mentioned the local reaction media wise, but also globally in the surf media, it was really picked up as well. <laughs> I was listening to the, you know, doing a bit of research, listening to the grit earlier, you know, they were discussing, discussing it on there. Um, quite often in surfing, there are certain incidents, events, or whatever that kind of like throw this, you know, this issue of gender parity into the public eye, really. And then you get, you get the kind of arguments played out through these incidents. Surfing, it, quite often in these situations, you know, I, because this debate that we're talking about, if, if we're talking about the gender pay gap, is obviously, I mean, it's not a new debate, is it? You know, if you look at probably the most famous incident of this type is in tennis, you know, the battle of the sexes. I mean, that's like 40 years ago where this whole argument was kind of played out in the most public way possible. Um, yeah, nearly 50 years later, we're kind of s still having that debate in our little corner of the world and it usually takes these these incidents for people to actually go oh yeah yeah right we should maybe think about that um do you were, were you surprised by the fact that well i guess it's a wider question are you surprised that we still even need to have this debate Um, it's interesting that you mentioned the battle of the sexes um, because one of the quotes that came out of that um, is something that I always carry with me when it comes to having these conversations is that women do not have to be grateful for crumbs. And that is exactly what I am thinking about when I'm thinking about gender equality in sport. Um, and to answer your question no, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised this conversation is still going on because um, it's like surfing at the, the culture of surfing is extremely patriarchal. It promotes a culture of hyper-masculinity. Um, so, so much of my character is formed around the fact that I, can, I have had to learn to paddle out into a lineup every day of my life to to almost always be one, one of a few girls or alone in a lineup of 30 to 50 men and w within that that's like just the gender imbalance in the water but the actual like the gender politics of those environments is like 
it's it's hyper masculine it's what is what, how you climb those ranks um climb that social hierarchy to to kind of make it, it like hold your own within a lineup is like valuing very masculine traits typically masculine traits um the feminine is not valued in the same sense within the social hierarchy of surfing um that's at a really kind of zoomed in political level of the lineup but in an industry sense um there's so many parts of the surf industry that um that don't recognize women as like the legitimate athletes that we are like when you think about surf history you think about surfing world magazine which is australia's longest running surf magazine 1967 onwards and that's this amazing beautiful documentation of australia's surf history yet the women that have been involved in that history are just erased and that's a small example within the global way that that women's surf history has has been erased and and it just means that there's this amnesia around like the women's place within within surfing and it's changing it's slowly now but even then like the reaction from the surf industry like beach grit were the first sort of publication to actually run anything about um my like prize money event um and otherwise like yeah i didn't i didn't feel like there was really many people like my friends within the industry and like people that for publications that i have relationships with wanted to talk about it but i actually almost thought that the silence was kind of deafening because um pub, like surf magazines and surf media you can scroll like six or 10 pages down tracks magazines instagram feed before you find a woman and that's now like where was tracks magazine when i was 15 and i was hungry for stories about women to guide me on on what i need to aim to be like as a surfer they were not there and like surf media is hugely complicit in giving um small community organizations or large global organizations like the WSL permission to relegate women to the sidelines because they they hold white men as the centerpiece of surfing and like all it does is by like putting out yet another article about Chipper Wilson or whatever all it does is is tell you that white men own surfing and they don't and but it's because it's the same people operating in these institutions that they're doing the hiring they're making the editorial decisions they're they're doing all of these things they're the they're in the leadership roles that reinforce this idea that surfing is a white male pursuit and it's not surfing is hugely diverse and that's what what makes it so great but within the media of it and the the sort of organized part of it um women white women and especially women of color are given no place within the industry well white women are given some place and women of color are given no place there's never been 
full-time Asian woman on the world tour. And I don't even think there's been a black African woman in a single WSL event. There's definitely not been one on tour. And like that is just so it's infuriating. And I think that the the industry can do so much better. And still, when we have at the top level, the WSL having events where um, with equal prize money, which is wonderful, um, they see, but then they'll, they'll, they had four events in Australia recently and they didn't put a woman commentator in the booth. Like how, like, how can you, like, how can that happen? And there's no, nothing in place to guarantee that these like workspaces are safe for women. There's nothing, there's, it's such a, it's actually very unregulated, I think. Um, and I think that there's just so far to go in, in terms of making these, um, in terms of having equal access, opportunity, recognition and support. And that's just not even getting into the inequality and sponsorship that professional surfers get. Um, I probably won't go into that now because it's a whole huge conversation, but there's so many ways that, that, that the surf industry is asymmetrical when it comes to gender. And the saddening thing is that compared to other sports, surfing is actually quite progressive. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I think that, uh, yeah, I think I was not surprised. I was not surprised at all. <laughs> well, I think the WSL thing has has almost enabled surfing to pat itself on the back a little bit, you know, like to, to the, I mean, the equal pay thing that, that the WSL did implement, as you've described, you know, there's, there's definitely a bit of like, oh yeah, well that's sorted, you know, like we dealt with that. But as you say, like, that's not the point at all. The point is this, you know, as you've just really adequately described, like this, the many layers to it the, and the many structural layers to it. I mean, I'm interested in what you said, you know, you, you talked about the local political level of the lineup. You talked about the wider political level of the industry and a concept that's come up a lot in the podcast over the, over the years is the idea that being privileged means essentially you've got more choices in some ways. And if you look at a young Australian male surfer and a young Australian female surfer, or any surfer actually comes to think of it, Australian is kind of irrelevant, but the, 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 the boy has more choices of how they get into surfing and what surfing means to them. But it, it seems, and this is kind of the question that I'm getting to. It seems like if you're a girl, you don't have many choices. Essentially there's only a few ways that surfing views you. So if you're going to take your place in this world, you have to navigate through that path that's been preordained basically by men i think is is a kind of i don't think anyone could argue against that really um or if you're gonna if you're gonna like move away from those preordained paths through the culture you have to risk you know in the way that you've obviously felt like you took a bit of a risk when you made this, the comments that you did you know which we should just say as well we're really polite i mean it's not like you were there like offering to fight anyone it was really courteous and polite but even then that's really telling because you kind of obviously felt that it was actually quite a dangerous thing for you to do so given that context I guess my question to you is can you explain like how that affected you as a surfer like like having to negotiate as a, especially as a young 
female surfer, like having to negotiate these, the lack of choice, the preordained paths, like however, however we want to phrase it. I'm sure you know what I'm getting at because, because you've, you, you've eloquently described that those things do have consequences. And obviously that isn't something that I think men ever have to consider when they get into surfing because it is just their world, you know, it's set up for them. Yeah, I guess like the path, um, the pathways from being a grom to being a professional surfer are, are quite different when you're a woman or a girl. Um, so for me personally, um, I guess I never, I never had huge, I've never had huge sponsorship opportunities, which is what allowed me to speak out because I have nothing to lose basically. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, like the way that gender operates in the surf industry is there's a very, there's very narrow perimeters or parameters of what it means to be an acceptable woman in the surf industry. This is really kind of dealt with a lot in the um, movie girls can't surf, um, which I would highly recommend everybody watch. Um, But the way that um, it's like, this kind of the scope of who you have to be is very small for you to fit easily into that industry. And um, I don't know if you ever will see um, any of the surf magazines that have had women on the cover, cover on the covers in recent years. I would challenge you to find out how many of those covers were Stephanie Gilmore, because even though she is this most wonderful surfer and um, probably, well, she's my hero, but she fits this category so nicely, right? She's beautiful. She's tall. She doesn't say anything out of, she doesn't say anything outspoken. She has, she has this like beautiful model body type and she surfs with style and she fits this kind of idea of what well what men have constructed to be an acceptable surfer girl um and so the pathway from being a grommet to being a professional surfer basically for a woman involves like squashing yourself into that archetype and not everybody can do that not everybody has a model's body not everybody is quiet and not this I don't know Steph Gilmore personally so I can't comment what she's like but nobody has a a beautiful smile that is looks lovely while they're surfing some people just want to rip and they can't do that if they want to survive in the industry if they want to get somewhere if they want to have opportunities um a professional surfer I spoke to recently told me that um she was in the North Shore for um, the WSL season. Um, she was in Hawaii last end of last year, and it was the fourth time she'd been to the North Shore, but it was the first time she'd ever surfed it. Um, she'd always gone there with her major sponsor. I'm not going to say who it was or which sponsor because I don't want to land her in trouble, but um, she had uh, she she had only ever gone for modeling for modeling trips, so she'd never surfed never surfed which is crazy and she was like I'm 23 and I've only surfed the North Shore for the first time now meanwhile the same company that sponsors her has um a camp that they run for boys from 16 years on every year they've done it forever in Hawaii 
and it's like hardcore surf training. So by the time they get on the CT and they're having to all like the QS and they're having to, to surf the season in Hawaii, they've been doing it for like years. And then, and then girls are then criticized for not being able to like, I don't know, surf pipe as well as some of these guys and not know how to get barreled properly um but that's because the emphasis is placed on like how women look in these contexts and um like for me I guess I didn't um I didn't really know any of those pathways and I didn't I didn't have those um opportunities but it's always something that I've really um analyzed a lot is the different is the sort of um, it's not just about the kind of surfer that you want to be, you would like to be like, I guess as a, as a man, you can be, you can be, um, I don't know, somebody who trains and you can be, um, Gabriel Medina, or you can be like Creed McTaggart, you know, you can like smoke weed and have tattoos and make clips and, go around the world being a dirt bag. You can be Al Nost. I don't know if Al, I don't think, well, Al Nost is maybe a dirt bag, but um, you can dirt bag your way around the world and, and people want to follow you and, and le- know about you and see your life. But as a woman, you need to have a perfectly flat stomach and be thin and then also somehow use that same body to surf. And I don't know if anybody out there has ever gone surfing, but it's not exactly conducive to being petite. Surfing is like having straw hair and having bruises and big shoulders and wrinkly skin because you're out in the sun all day. And <laughs> and I think that if you don't fit with fit into those parameters, it can be really difficult for you as a surfer. And then also in the industry as well of like, I don't know, that because of these archaic views that that exist, it's challenging to get opportunities if you're like, I don't know, if you're butch or something like that. Like that's still going on and that's like it's, I guess it's maybe hopefully changing as some of these archaic um, really unfeminist men who are holding the reins of surf industry maybe retire or get pushed out because there's no money in it or something and eventually things can change a little bit but yeah that's what that would kind of be my comments on that I think I mean one of the things I really noticed about I mean I'm, I'm gonna mention the beach grit thing actually which is quite specific but it's quite telling it's quite hard with Chaz sometimes to know if he's just being a provocateur or actually means it but one of the things he was talking about was like hey we should make women's longboarding better paid because like it's actually better than the men's like i prefer watching it you know i prefer women's longboarding therefore we should we should make you know we should take it in the opposite direction which is kind of funny but when i was listening to that i thought but that's the same thing isn't it that's like basically a man making a value judgment on like the the value of an aspect of female surfing and using that to make the argument you know, when, whereas really, and you, you, you kind of hear that type of thing a lot, whereas really like the outcome of it and how that affects, how that, how, how that lands with men, it's not really the point, is it? You know, like we're not, we're not really talking about that in this conversation. Well, that's how it seems to me anyway. It's more talking about like 
what opportunities the way you set like the setup of this how that can give women the same opportunities as men basically and then let's see what outcomes that leads to because like we're talking like we're saying currently the way it's set up those outcomes are quite preordained or you know they they lead to these certain paths really is that something you've noticed when the debate gets discussed um yeah i find those comments comments interesting um that the women's longboarding people prefer to watch it so therefore maybe women should get more um and i i think that that I think it's a flawed argument because it's the same argument that men say, well, the men are better, so they should get paid more for shortboarding, um, which... It's a, mer- it's a meritocracy argument, isn't it, basically, you know? Yeah, but also it's it's a meritocracy. It could be meritocracy, but it's also like looking at surfing um, purely in like economic terms, like... It's looking, it's taking a very neoliberal capitalist lens to surfing. And even though that's what the industry perhaps is, that's, I personally think that that's where the industry goes wrong. I don't think we should let the free market economy decide on the opportunities that people should get um, for what is essentially a social pursuit, a social, it's, it's social experiential. Um, and I, I think that... Maybe that's just me looking at it in a way that um, I don't I don't want the free market economy to determine every part of my life, and I would like <laughs> I would like the value of surfing to be measured <laughs> beyond just economic terms. That sure, women surfing is better, <laughs> maybe in in longboarding, um, but does that mean that they should get more? Like, what is the relationship? between being more and being more entertaining and getting more because in the end the effort that everyone puts in is the same the f the the amount that it costs to be there is the same it's not my fault that my gender determines how good i am at it like gender is something we can't control yet we're trying to let the free market economy put economic value on gender and i think that that's like that's not fair. I I don't think that that resolves the issue anyway. It's not transformative change. It's it's just further neoliberalizing something that I would prefer to be regulated. Um, and I think that I think that we should get the same. I I'm not asking for more. I'm asking for the same. How do you counter the let's call it the merit meritocracy argument? Because Again, when you when this debate gets played out in every sphere, football, tennis, golf, the the same points are made. And you really saw this in some of the comment sections. Like, well, if it's that big a deal, let the women compete against the men and let's see the be- like for equal prize money, let's see who's best. You know, there's that argument. There's yeah, I mean, I'm sure you know those arguments better than better than I do. So how how do you when you come up against that type of view, how do you, what, what's your response to that? I think that um, if we're going to say, okay, well, we're not going to let um, principles of equality determine the, um, how the outcomes here, we're going to let market forces determine the outcome. So what are the market forces? It's 
the amount of people watching, but it's also where does the money come from for prize money and sponsorship? It comes from private companies and where are those companies getting their highest revenue from? Demand shop? I don't think so. Most of these companies, these brands, their biggest market is actually women. So if like, what are we going to use as the determining factor in the meritocracy? Is it, is it you surf better so you get more? Or is it where is more money coming from? Because either way, that's <laughs> kind of still the wrong way around. So if, if anyone wants to present that argument to me, I would say that be careful what you wish for because you're probably going to end up with getting less in all facets of surfing. In my mind, the surf industry has had it the wrong way around the whole time because women have always been bigger consumers of, of apparel. So if that's what's... If if we're going to let that determine how much money uh, the surface should get, or we're going to use merit, because I I think that um, either way it ends up unfair. And like, do we want it to be fair, or are we using the spirit of competition and competing against trying to make it unfair? Like, I don't know. In my mind, I want it to be fair. So um, I would say that if we're going to use market forces as a way of determining the value that um, men or women have in surfing, then I would be really wary about that. I think also there's an argument to be made around perception and participation, isn't there? Because as you've kind of said, you used Pipe as the example earlier, North Shore, about how that does perpetuate the situation. You know, the idea that if you're a young surfer, like you don't get to surf there until, you know, whereas if you're a man, you get to surf there. And obviously, again, if you take that putative young female surfer who's maybe like A and just getting into surfing and deciding that this is for them, you know, like they might look at that and think, well, actually, that's not for me. That's a boy's thing. And then that's just perpetuating the whole thing. Like this, you know, like the less, the less churn there is for new people coming in, then the less it's going to change. And again, you know, for men aren't limited in that way because it's considered that everything is fair game for them. So it's another way that it kind of stacks the deck really because the argument like, well, you know, the other argument they hear, well, men are better, so they deserve it to put it crudely, you know, like there's, there is a correlation between opportunity and outcome in, in a lot of, you know, in these areas, sport is obviously a really great example of that. Um, yeah, like that's a really good point. Um, I think that uh, it's not just like that is hugely um, like a huge part of it. Like whenever I speak to people um, that want to start surfing, speak to women or girls that want to start surfing, the biggest thing that they're afraid of is the lineup, that they won't paddle out because there's scary guys out there. I won't paddle out sometimes because there's scary guys out there and I've been surfing for 15 years and I'm probably better at surfing than a lot of those scary guys out there and I'm still scared of them. Um, but that's one, that's one barrier. But when we talk about standards, and that's why the argument of meritocracy is so flawed, it's flawed within surfing and it's flawed within um, any capitalist society, um, patriarchal capitalist society, is that it's a cycle of, um, so first of all, the opportunity is less in terms of getting in the water because there's this very hyper-masculine patriarchal environment that women are ex and young girls are expected to enter 
But then there's also things like you want to join your local board writers club. Um, I spoke to the head of a board writers club here in Sydney where they have um, 150 members and only 12 of them are women. And um, every month they have their monthly comp and um, the the men get, the winner of the open men's gets $200 and the winner of the open, open women's gets $50. And at the end of the year, they have their um, club champion and um, they get, the, the men get $1,000 and the women get $250. And they say, well, there's less, there's less women, so there's less money, but there's like there's a hundred and something men, and so they get more money. And it's kind of like, well, if you're going to invest less in women surfing, then there's going to be less women, and the standard is going to be lower because the competition is less. Um, that's at one sense, but then also in the sense that um, that like it's generational cumulative learning, right? Like men's surfing didn't get to where it is in one go. Um, I've always found this a really fascinating part of, um, of, <laughs> of humanity. When you think about like where we are with modern inventions, when you sit in an airplane and um, like when somebody invents something these days, they didn't invent an aeroplane. They didn't make the whole thing with all the different stuff that it's got now with those little buttons that you can press to like adjust your angle of your chair or um, I don't know, whatever planes are doing with technology now. They invented one thing to do with that plane, maybe like a new something for the wing that makes it more fuel efficient or like a new button that you can press that makes the entertainment system a little bit better or something and they added to the overall design of that aeroplane. And when we think about sport and we think about surfing, that's what we're doing, right? Like Gabriel Medina didn't invent the air reverse. All he did was add to the way that it's been done. And um, because women's surfing is not, has never been as big because history has not been as documented because the opportunities have always been as, as smaller because we haven't had the same media to, to learn from because we haven't had the same opportunities because we haven't had the same financial investment. There's a lag like it's, and then to, for all of that um, to happen to all of that kind of working together to reduce the performance the level of performance in women women surfing surfing then that that performance level is then used as the argument as to why women should get less money it's like it's a fallacy in that sense because it's well it's the closed circuit of patriarchy i guess that um all of that sort of intergenerational accumulated knowledge um is is just less for women surfing because of all the ways that women have been pushed out over the years um and it's also to do with like wider culturalized social ideas around women's participation in sport it's not only men pushing women out of the industry it's like wider cons like um yeah like the way that society sees women that you shouldn't i don't know maybe in the 70s that women should have been out at home doing um I don't know, housework or something, um, when they could have maybe been down at the beach. Um, and, like, I guess that's a that's a bigger social 
concern around women's participation in in sport um but in that sense that like we just haven't had the same um opportunity to build that that culture that we have and like when you that that men have and when you look at now like i don't know a few years ago where women didn't do airs in competition and then you look at Sierra Kerr now it's like she didn't just learn to do that overnight she's like built on the knowledge that already exists and the opportunity and the access and everything that she has had um to be able to do these huge friggin airs that she can do um and so that I think um is is like massively um determines like the performance level um that's like a cultural part rather than actually like a physical part of surfing um and i (laughs) yeah i would say like it's interesting that this talking about this with you is kind of come from talking about Chaz uh smith because after pipe last year um the the beach group put an article out, out about Sally Fitzgibbons didn't know how to get barreled and got it got it paid the same um and it was someone I don't know who wrote it some person that had no grasp of how the world works um wrote this article that was like saying it was unfair that women got paid the same because the performance was so much lower and I just thought to myself that friggin journalist is getting paid the same and he doesn't know shit (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of things to discuss from that i mean first on your point your point about societal change and you know the expectations and perceptions of women and how that impacts things for example like participation in sport i mean that's why this is important though isn't it because this is how the these these are the areas where this change happens in society where you know so there's there's that but on that point you make about surf culture basically you know that that beach grit thing that's like that 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 is just an intrinsic part unfortunately of surf culture isn't it you know the this this idea that you know the macho line like the the you've described you've given a number of examples of it in this conversation and it always strikes me for example when like well there's stab just put a thing up on instagram about localism and i actually had the misfortune of reading the comments on that the other day because i'm quite fascinated by that topic as as a lot of people are and you know one thing that became apparent as i was reading the the comments was like how tied up it is in the identity of being a surfer particularly a male surfer you know this idea that like it is darwinian it is basically survival of the fittest like and if you don't if you don't buy that then you're actually just not even a surfer. You know, it's like it, it, it's so wrapped up in the male identity of being a surfer. So when, can do you think like it can change? Because we're talking about pretty entrenched positions here, aren't we? You know, like if you look at that paradigm of what it means to be a male surfer, as I've, you know, I've just given like one example of that. You've just given the example of the the article that you read. You know, there's just endless examples of it. And then the, the the path that we've talked about for female surfing, you know, there's still such a huge gap. Like, do you feel that that 
that can ever be changed? I mean, that's a huge question, obviously, because you might as well, I might as well ask you that about society in general, of which surfing is just a reflection, um, clearly. <laughs> I feel like I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't think that it could change. Um, I, I doubt I'll see the death of the patriarchy in my lifetime, but um, <laughs> I, I, would, I would argue that if it's Darwinian, then um, natural selection works in the sense that the environment changes and those that are adapted to it survive. So I would hope that as the environment of surfing changes, these archaic, obsolete attitudes, you either change or you die. (laughs) Not that I wish anyone would die, but maybe they won't survive within the paradigm of surfing because um like surfing is like I really um I didn't read any of the comment section on any of the media um during my experience in the media because um that's a good rule generally I think isn't it yeah my because like a couple of comments that I accidentally read um I thought wow people are so mean (laughs) um and like yeah, I think I read of I, one of the most horrible comment sections that I've ever stumbled across was on a WSL post um, of Tyler Wright with Black Lives Matter on her board when she took a knee in Tweed. Um, I thought that was a really, uh, well, it was a really interesting kind of moment and um, I definitely reflected a lot and thought about it a lot in terms of like the WSL coming out in support of Black Lives Matter at that moment, three months after the movement had really taken off and um, the moment they came out in support of it was when it was a white person um, expressing solidarity. And um, I thought that that was an interesting move by the WSL itself, um, followed by this absolute, like, disgusting showcase of the most horrendous parts of the white male ego in surfing in the comment section of their post about it because it's not just it's not just male it's white male that they were white men who so many um so many times believing that have these entrenched this entrenched idea that they have ownership over surfing um and I think, like, I didn't read that Jed Smith article um, on STAB just yet, but um, I I think that when it comes to something like localism, which is, like, ultimately it is a show of possession over a place, that if you're a white man and doing that, and particularly here in Australia, um, like, in my mind, what right do you have to that? Because this country and this land is... Um, is Indigenous. It always was and it, it always will be Aboriginal land. So to as this, as a settler, to come and have this fierce protection over this territory that is not even yours, if anything, if you were able to analyse that um, properly, you would realise that this is why this is part of the reason why it's so hurtful and so terrible to theft people's land right um and to then have the kind of audacity to theft and settle on land and then be so protective of it that you won't even let anybody else visit and surf it um that 
fundamentally goes against what I believe is the purpose of surfing and why surfing is great um, because it should be shared and it should be for everyone. And this kind of really this, yeah, it is deeply entrenched like white male um, ego or fragility around um, surfing. I would say it's deeply entrenched, but when I, when we talk about deeply entrenched, it's only going back to the 1950s or 60s. So um, because prior to that, surfing was um, a South Pacific and Hawaiian activity and it's been co-opted to be this like white Californian um, kind of stereotype or whatever identity um, that has kind of then sort of spread globally as, as what a surf, surfing identity is. But like, I think that we, we can, I think we can change it. I think it can be different. I think that we can collectively for the people who believe in that change that we can coordinate and organize and, and keep on doing stuff like calling out people. So it changes, starting campaigns, talking to each other, reaching out. When I accidentally look at those comment section, those comments that make me so upset, I can just comfortably go back into my own Instagram message requests and it's like the kindest place on the on the internet. So <laughs> that's encouraging. <laughs> is is seeking out different perspectives in this kind of traditional view of surf culture that well, like should I say, post war view of surf culture as you just correctly put it is is seeking out alternatives that one reason why travel has been so important to you over the years because obviously you you are very well traveled and looks like you've sought out places to surf and to experience that are quite far removed from the you know the classic kind of lineage as it were was is that a big part of it for you yeah, hugely. Like um, surfing such a, a great conduit to access communities and places. Um, I've always had the luxury of being able to travel to somewhere where I don't know anyone, but I know there's waves and um, because I, I can stand up and and some when wiggle on a wave, that it's been my avenue to be able to talk to people and meet people and um, and I guess over the years of traveling to places like like East Africa, Mozambique, and um, last year before the pandemic, I was lucky enough to go to Algeria to meet Algeria's only woman surfer, which was amazing. Um, and, yeah, to kind of go to places where there are surf communities that are kind of, I guess, largely ignored by the mainstream surf industry um, and where the white male um, dominant identity of the surfer is not maybe quite as present because the communities are not necessarily white or not yet. I guess if you're in an African community, an African surf community, the white male identity is maybe um, not as set front and centre. It's still very masculine. It's still very male. But um, it also has given me the opportunity to meet people from like all parts of the world who surf and to understand that 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 this that this identity this surfing this this circus that is surfing is not just a singular story of chipper wilson in 
Tracks magazine yet again. It's um, it's people who are doing really interesting, cool things. There's people who are just surviving, and there's people who are um, flourishing. They're becoming the first professional surfer from their country or whatever it is. Um, and there's such different stories rather than like growing up on the Gold Coast and then um, doing some QS events and then getting on the CT and and then and then here we are. It's it's much it's much more different than that, and it's made me um, have a lot more, I guess, care for this these kind of issues. Um, and I guess it's kind of reinforced my perceptions and ideas around the importance of of trying to make change because I can, I can try and push for change in the industry and in society for women, because I am a woman. Um, and that's my lived experience that, um, that I can push for, for something to be different. It's more difficult to do that if it's not your lived experience, because you, you can't, you can, you can support social movements that aren't yours, but you can't, you can't lead them because, um, well, that is not exactly, that's basically uh, the opposite of what we would like to do. That's kind of cultural imperialism, which um, that, so it's, yeah, I guess traveling to these different places has, has given me fuel to try and understand and, and shift um, the way that things in surfing are happening, at least for my community around me. And then now more widely, now that I've had these kind of, I've been given this platform or I've, I've gotten this platform to be able to do it. Um, but traveling has definitely, traveling to different surf communities has definitely um, inspired and impassioned me to to try and, and do things differently. Yeah, I just watched brilliant brilliant corners is it is that what it's called sam's show i always want to call it different corners for some reason um <laughs> yeah i just watched it the algeria um one of the things i was doing this morning actually yeah it's great it's really really great i mean you know one of the things obviously that's great about it is like you say to see a vision of surfing which isn't based upon the traditional values of like proficiency for one you know like which is something that I always just generally find quite interesting. The idea that if you're not proficient, you don't have a voice and you have to earn the right to have a voice because that's, you know, comes up a lot. And I think we're going to, I think it's as in, it comes up a lot in these conversations, but I think it's going to be really interesting in the next few years, because I don't know what it's like over there, but there's been a huge explosion of, new surfers over here i think a lot to do with like covid and lockdown and the fact that you know coastal people like oh you know like i can try that and that's really fun you know coming into it without any idea about any of the kind of cultural ephemera of surfing and like you know how you're supposed to do it and then you know coming up against this you know like well you got to do it this way and if you don't do it this way then you're a kook and like you're and, and not only you're a kook but we're going to like push you away and we're going to exclude you and uh, you know proficiency is a huge part to do to do with that the way that that gatekeeping's kind of enacted but i quite i just you know whenever i see something like that where the where there's a discussion around surfing which isn't about proficiency it's about the experience of it to that person and that community it's just very refreshing 
because it's 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 not as it's just not as common as it should be really you know sometimes i'm just amazed that the debate still plays out in this way really you know that that we're still actually even having this conversation about who who has the right to do it which is what it comes down to ultimately isn't it yeah like um i think that's yeah it's interesting that you say that um the way that like the way that the kind of the social terrain of surfing is constructed is that yeah like the better you are at surfing the more sort of social capital you have and the more qualified you are to comment um but as we talked about i think maybe before you started recording is that um somebody can be quite prolific as an athlete and then we expect them to um have a lot to say about things but actually they maybe just would like to do whatever sport it is that they do um so we have these expectations that if you're good at surfing then automatically you are qualified to comment whereas um there are people like um i've recently connected with an academic at the university of queensland that she has um done a lot of her research around gender and surfing and um she has said it's a really interesting part of her research is that when she is engaging with surf communities and she has written about um about localism a lot um her name's rebecca olive you should look up her work it's really good uh um, no i just uh sorry sorry just as a quick aside yeah i actually vaguely know rebecca through um okay. instagram believe it or not but I, uh, she just wrote a very interesting piece about localism um which i'm sure you yeah. read for, for surf simply which i actually shared like on my in my newsletter and on my instagram yeah. stuff um yeah i mean so she her, yeah her take is is fascinating for sure she like basically a lot of her her phd was about localism and the way that um well like the way that gender operates in the in the scheme of localism and how like women are, are like it's another layer of localism in in the sense that women are then treated as outsiders even if they are like local to an area um but she she comments that um, when she does this research that the first thing that people want to know about her is how good she can surf. Um, and she will always say, I surf fine. And, um, and it has to, like, she's a researcher. So, like, doing research on surfing, social research, the qualifications for that are not being good at surfing. The qualifications for that is a PhD. And um, so, but... But it's hard for her to like get legitimacy within communities without, um, like, without kind of being a, like a really highly skilled surfer. Like, that's that's what she she has talked about that with me, and it's something I found really interesting. Of like being traveling to different places around the world, I can say that surfing has been this great conduit for me to access communities because I can surf well enough that I'm able to go. It doesn't really matter about my personality. Look how good I can surf. And therefore I've just like automatically awarded this like social capital that gives me access. And um, and like it is like being in Algeria was really lovely in that sense that um, I guess it was exciting for people to see Sam and myself and um, Erwan, the other guy who was on the trip with us, um, to see that we can like really surf and um they like people there didn't really um, maybe the standard was not as high as like maybe 20 people who surf in Algeria um and 
like that's exciting but in the end it is just about like being out in the water being excited for the conditions um and doesn't really have this kind of like entrenched hierarchy of who you are being built around your level of skill and your amount of time that you've put in in a location and this idea of like earning your stripes or whatever it is um that kind of happens around in in places like different breaks around Australia where um we have this like this longer history of of surfing but um something an interesting experience I had a few years ago was in Tofino in um Vancouver Island in Canada um that like surfing has really taken off there and I don't know when there was sort of like the first fledgling surf community but I think that um it's kind of a more recent surf community. Um, it doesn't have this like history dating back to the sixties where you had um, whoever legends of surfing at Manly or whatever to dating through till now that when you tap into the surf community, that's the history you're up against. It's, it's more recent than that. And the thing is that there, there's like, there's more women in the water than there are men. And um, I had that ex- that thought that I I was like, this doesn't, it's not this culture of um, this like intense, like sort of structure or this like skeleton of, of masculine dominance that is um, being built up and crusted on, rusted onto over the years. It's like, it's sort of like founded on like not really having a sense of that and then there's just all these girls in the water and now there's like so many women that surf there there's like out any any given lineup there was actually the same or more um women and girls in the water which i was found really interesting and i think that was a product of it being a, a newer surf community well you can that's the point you can choose you don't need to take all the aspects of it you don't need to blindly copy it i mean that's what i always find so fascinating about british surfing you know british surfing is 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 unique in terms of waves and geography but has tended to sort of wholesale import the culture as if we have australian californian indonesian waves so you get people responding to situations as if they live in that culture and often i'm just a bit like are you mad? You know, we're surfing like four second windswell intervals in like 50 mile an hour southwesterly. Like we don't even have a lineup, you know, like the idea that you can regulate this environment in the same way that you can regulate G-land is just ludicrous. Like, you know, like look around, you know, like, yeah, we, we need to like be mindful of, of, each other and obviously certain things but you know like let's let's be real let's let's treat this place for the environment that it is not like the way that we should treat it because that's what we've basically consumed by looking at surf media for 50 years you know like you, you you can choose and i guess that's brings us back to like the wider conversation doesn't it you know like the status quo thing like it's all a choice like none of this is none of this is actually preordained like it has been created by people you know like there was no there was no there's no like tab 10 commandment tablets as much as you know people like to use the history to claim that there was like it 
it has been created this and you can you do get to choose it's i think it's a point worth making really because quite often it's you know it brings it back to that whole like well no you've got to act like this if you want to be a surfer you know which is it's like well i don't know if you do personally yeah i guess like that's kind of where my sense of hope for things to be different would come from because like a social construction is just a collective agreement right we just collectively agree that this is how it is um so we can collectively agree for it not to be like that too. Um, all it takes is the collective agreement and to get everybody to to change their minds. Um, and I guess that's what happens over time, that we see things that are like really entrenched collective agreement, say something like gender is a social construction. Like we sort of historically socially constructed the idea that the category of woman is this and the category of man is that. Um, and then as we actually create room in our society for gender diversity, for people that don't fit into that, that binary, um, that's what the fight for trans rights is, right? It's a fight to, um, like change the collective agreement on gender, that there is more than these two categories, these two narrow, um, narrow groups. And, um, that like, that's become clear to me recent, quite recently um, because of like the way that this can change and where I, the area that I live in the inner West in Sydney, I moved here um, just over a year ago and I had moved from like, I've always lived in small coastal towns where there isn't a lot of gender or ethnic diversity in a lot of places. They're mostly oriented around surfing and, and how good you can surf. And then being here, it's set back from the beach. It's only eight Ks, but that's kind of far by Australian standards, I guess. <laughs> you have to cross the city to go to the beach. And around this area, <clears throat> it's a much, it's a big creative arts scene. It's where a lot of the social movements in Sydney come out of. Um, and it's a university area as well. And there's like very, like there's hugely, um, eth- like a huge amount of ethnic and gender diversity here. It's kind of like these collective agreements have been, changed we collectively agree something different specifically in this geography um and that's really encouraging because it's like over time we can change what we we agree on what we agree those constructions to be um and so when it comes to something like what is acceptable in surfing or what it takes to be part of the surf community that over time and with enough conversations and enough exposure that we can co- collectively agree to be kind to each other <laughs> and to be to treat each other like equals and um, to be inclusive and to not kind of just hold tight onto these nostalgic ideas that don't even exist. Um, I think like that, like this this idea of honoring history it is so important but we can choose which parts of the history we honor and we don't have to honor the parts that we that don't that don't serve us and don't make our our community better and kinder we can we can transform it and envision something something um much more and um so that i guess is kind of what my where my hope comes from is that we can we can change these things eventually yeah like i say i think it's a real obvious point 
that isn't actually that obvious a lot of the time because you just do you do sort of things can seem entrenched can't they they can seem like you know even when i asked that question earlier like oh do you think things can change it's a bit of a stupid question really because fact of the matter is like things do change you know like the if yeah i'm not even going to use any examples we can all think of countless examples of things that where you know where the social overton window if you like has shifted to to what's acceptable and what's you know not acceptable and people get used to that new reality pretty quickly and from that new reality further change comes so yeah i mean i've got i've I've slightly go on sorry say that again (laughs) no you were going to say something carry on Oh, I was going to say that I, I, I hope that you're, you're right because, um, like we, it's easy, it's, it's passive to accept that, um, things have always been this way. So that's for, that's how they'll, therefore that's how they will continue because like, if you can just be active in the way that you think about something, why do I hold these values? Why do I think of it in this way? Um, and take an active position on it. Is this, is this equal? Is this inclusive? And like that, then you can, it's much easier to see the ways that it, um, that it isn't right to continue with these, these time honored traditions that, that maybe don't um, really serve us. And I think Nick, that was really showcased in, in like this equal prize money call out situation that I had that what, like the, one of the organizers, um, he was sort of quoted the most, I think he was kind of gone to, to the media. He was a go-to for the media during that period. Um, he was saying, well, it's just always been like this. Um, and so, and no one's ever said anything. And so we just kept on going with it. And, but he, and then he admitted, he said, well, I'm actually a human rights lecturer at a uni. And, and I thought it's, it's such a, like, it's just so it's such a, a showcase of like of being passive, right? That you can your day job is to go to university and teach people about the legal framework um, for like for what they can base any of anything, any of their moves for social justice from, which is human rights. And then in your part-time hobby, forget about all that and just passively accept a tradition that's in place. Um, and so and if, to, to, if, he, if that guy had taken an active stance and actively thought these principles that I'm engaging with every day in human rights law, um, how, like what do they mean in, in day-to-day life and what is it, this situation of organising this surf contest and questioning this status quo um, being, it takes just being active about it and not just passively accepting that that is the way that's the way. So that it's, that's what we do. Well, that's how passivity becomes complicity, isn't it? In the end, really? Yeah. Yeah. That was really great. I really enjoyed that. How's that? Is that all right? Yeah, totally. Um, I hope that <laughs> the things I had to say were sounded okay. <laughs> no, it's really, really interesting. I really appreciate you taking the time time to do it. 
Yeah. What's on for the rest of the, I guess, what we are now, half nine-ish, your end? Um, it's, well, it's only 8.30, but it's <clears throat> 8.30 on a Friday night in lockdown. So nothing, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, more, um, more. Yeah, God, I hope we don't go back there, I must say. Um, yeah we just did did a winter lockdown here in january and i must say it was the bleakest january of my life well i think of everyone's life really there's no doubt about that so i hope it's not too long for you yeah i definitely feel like um i'm just working like i can luckily i can work from home and i just like working all the time because i don't have anything else to do (laughs) yeah (laughs) i decided bleak really (laughs) yeah i decided to just try and read more books um yeah and yeah and be uh be better with like you know stop trying to read like improving books that i can't that i have to plow through and just be like what do i actually like reading right i'm just going to do more read more of that which has been yeah definitely really really good actually had a like decent accumulation of books over the last um little while especially like since this whole like media frenzy thing in some ways it really turned my life upside down like it's been pretty intense and then like all of my days off have been spent doing things associated with it, whether it's like working on the campaign to try and change some um, the way funding is given out to clubs, which is what I've been doing, or like doing media stuff and doing more kind of like long form interviews like this. It's um, I've been putting so much time into it because I I think that I can't tune out now. I've started and I need to keep going. Um, but now lockdown has kind of finally presented me with the opportunity to read some stuff. And so I've had to, I've got two books on the go at the same time. I have to have one going in the morning and one in the night <laughs> in the name of efficiency. So there you go. That was me and Lucy. Hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Lucy for taking the time to chat to me and for the eloquent thought-provoking and important conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, I think you'll also enjoy some of the other episodes in my archive that cover similar territory. As mentioned earlier, conversations with Lane Beachley, Lauren Hill, Corey Schumacher, Sam McGuire, Lauren McCallum, Leo Baker, my recent one with Sally McGee from Yonder. There's a lot of them out there that I've done now that cover this type of issue you can find them all as well as the full show notes for each episode including this one at my website www.wearelookingsideways.com now i know i always say this yes it is housekeeping corner time when this type of topic comes up on the show but i'm always amazed by how far behind mainstream discourse surf skate and snow culture are when it comes to these issues this is a point cory schumacher made very clearly during our conversation a couple of years ago in this case this is not a new debate and i absolutely guarantee that any thought or opinion you've got on this matter has been possibly debunked and certainly thoroughly debated over the years i mean the battle of the sexes which we talked about in this conversation in which billy jean king played and defeated bobby riggs was literally 48 years ago and that was you know, a physical manifestation of this entire debate in which Billie Jean King won and beat Bobby Riggs, um, who was a chauvinistic male tennis player who was basically making that argument, you know, if you want equity, then play a man and I'll play you and I'll beat you. Well, he did play Billie Jean King and she beat him. You know, we're still having this conversation um, nearly 50 years later, 
and in surfing as if it's like the first time anyone's even thought about this stuff. My point is there's a wealth of material out there. So if you do want to find out more, I'll put some links in the show notes to point you in the right direction. Okay, more housekeeping and some actual housekeeping this week, some actual proper, you know, business to take care of because the contest I ran around my book, Looking Sideways Volume 1, came to an end and I chose some winners. So to recap, anybody who bought the book before July was automatically entered into a prize draw to win an exclusive Owen Tozer print of their choice from the book. And uh, that's just what happened. So congratulations to Florian Shora, Olga Redavina, Stephen Cave, Tom Hurley, Laura O'Connor, Jason Cross, Peter Chivers, Toby Bull, El Sutherland and Katie Held for winning those uh, prints. They were all pretty stoked, as I'm sure you would agree, if you've received the book and looked at the quality of pictures in there. That one works so well that I'm doing another one. Same deal with an added bonus, really, because I've roped in my mates at Good Rays. Basically, anybody that orders the book between now and July the 7th, 2021, which is probably a few days after you listen to this, will be entered into a draw. I'll be picking three winners who will get to select an Owen Tozer pick of their choice from the book, which will make into an exclusive print for them. And you'll also receive some swag from Good Rays in the form of a crate of said beverage and some merch, probably a cap and a t-shirt. Now I say, to order Looking Sideways Volume 1 and to be automatically entered into this competition, head on over to my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com. You'll see a big button on the top nav bar that says book. Click that and you'll be away. I'm sure you'll work it out. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you for checking it out. Thanks to Lucy for the great chat. Show notes. Remember to look up a few bits if you want to follow it up. And I'll see you next time. Nice one. (laughs)